0: Okay, so we're going to dive into Luke this morning. So if you have your Bible, you can open your Bible to Luke chapter 3. And if you don't have a Bible but want to follow along, just slip your hand up and someone will get you a Bible. You guys excited for John the Baptist this morning? They asked me to preach because I had a beard, so they said, you can preach on John the Baptist, not... What I'm doing right now is just filling time until other people get their Bibles, so. (laughs) All right, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 3. I feel like I'm really loud. Am I really loud right now? Okay, cool. I like it loud, but anyway. We're going to read verses 1 through 18. So here we go. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iteria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare a way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight and the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the tree, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then, the crowd asked. And John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came out to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Do not collect any more money than you're required to, he told them. And then some soldiers asked, what are we to do? What should we do? And he replied, do not exhort money and do not accuse people falsely and be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. And John answered them. I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor, to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And With many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed to them the good news. This is God's word. You can have a seat. So if you're new to Crossroads, if this is your first time here or you're visiting, uh, first of all, welcome. Second, there's something that you need to know about us. We love the Bible. Amen? In fact, our middle name is Bible, Crossroads Bible Church. And the reason that we're in love with the Bible is because we really believe that it is the Word of God. That it's truth, that it's wisdom for us, that it tells us not only who God is, it tells us who we are in light of who God is. We need that. And so we get excited on Sunday mornings when we have an opportunity to open it up and talk about it. The reason that we stand when we read God's word is because we have anticipation. Rod always says it's like a it's like a running back getting the ball and rounding the outside, and he's clear to the end zone. Nobody just sits in their chair, they all stand. We're waiting for God to do something, to show us who he is through his word. And it's one of my favorite things to do, to just sit with someone and open the Bible and read it and talk about it. And I love it because of texts like this today, because of texts like Luke 3. Where we've been so far in Luke's gospel has been spectacular. We've seen really that God's desire... His desire is the same desire as it was thousands of years before when he brought people up out of Egypt. He says, I'm bringing you to the desert because I want to dwell with you. He says, I'm coming, I'm leaving my throne, and I'm coming to a virgin to be born because I want to dwell with you. It's still his desire today. God goes to incredible lengths in order to do this. But in Luke chapter 3, we really begin to get into the things that make us Christians, Christians, right? The life, the death, the teaching, the resurrection of Jesus. We're at the cusp of all those things in Luke chapter three. In fact, Dan will preach next week on part two, Jesus' baptism, His commissioning. And as exciting as all that is, we still have to stop, we still have to pause, and, and we can't rush there. We have to say, "What about this text?" This is a text that really can't be skipped. It can't be passed over because it's fundamental to who Christ is. Without John the Baptist, as he's been called, the work of Christ would have not had a place to land. John had to set the stage for the appearing of the man. He had to make a way for the Son of Man to come. So as eager as we all are to get to Christ, we need to just pump the brakes and dive into John a little bit. And this morning, the way I want to start is by doing something that All pastors say, and they are fully aware that no one does it. Ready? Forget everything you know about John the Baptist. It's impossible because we know the end of the story, right? But I'm being serious a little bit. There's thousands of people who are going out into the wilderness to see what John has to say. They don't know who John is. They don't know what John is saying and preaching, And if we can read the beginning of chapter 3 that way, just as if we're one of those people going out into the wilderness to hear what this guy has to say, I think we can learn some things that Luke wants us to learn. The questions that I have as I read Luke 3 like that are this. Who is John? What is John's message? And how is his message meant to hit me in the chest today? How am I supposed to walk his message out? Who is this guy screaming in the wilderness? What's he saying? And what does it have to do with me? Those are the questions that we're going to be asking this morning. And so first, who is John? Is this the first that we've heard of John? Luke chapter 3? Right. So just like Jesus, remember, Luke's, or John's birth was foretold by the angel Gabriel. Remember, Gabriel comes to Zechariah, John's father, as he's offering prayers and incense in the temple. The angel of the Lord comes to him and says, do not fear, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, she's going to bear you a son, and you're to call him John, and he will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from before his birth. He's going to bring back the hearts of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. He's going to go on before them in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedience to the wisdom of the righteous. There's some real key things that we need to pull out of that text in order to understand who John is. The first thing that we need to see is is his name. The angel talks about his name. And for us, I feel like names aren't always the biggest deal. Parents just kind of name their kids what we want to call them for the rest of their lives, right? But names really meant something to the people of israel they would call their kids things like god is my judge that's daniel this john his name not given by his parents his name given by god himself is yahweh is gracious god is gracious and maybe you don't see that at first but here's an old man, well past his child, bearing years, right? Him and his wife. And he's praying still, like a crazy person, asking for a son, asking for a son. And the Lord is gracious, hears his prayer, and grants him his request. It's amazing. Every time Zachariah and every time Elizabeth would look at this boy, it'd be welling up in their hearts. God, God is gracious. He is gracious. Look at this son. Something else we need to know about John is that his father and his mother were both part of a priestly line. His father was in the line of Abijah. His mother was from the line of Aaron, Moses' brother. Gives us a little insight about what his childhood may have looked like, right? Um, His parents were devout. Some of you know what that's like. They knew the text. He'd most likely follow in the footsteps of his father, uh, he would be studying the Bible, the Torah. He'd be going to class, just like all the other Jewish boys. But the question I have is, is he like all the other Jewish boys? Probably not. The text gives us a little insight. He's a, he's a Nazarite. No wine or other fermented drink is meant to hit his lips. If you know your Old Testament, Numbers chapter 6 talks about a man who wants to be set apart for the Lord, who wants to make a vow of consecration. That word consecration, set apart, it literally means it's Nazarite. I want to be set apart for the Lord. And the Nazarite would do some things. They they wouldn't cut their hair or shave their face. They wouldn't drink wine or or other fermented drink and they wouldn't go around anyone uh, who has died or any dead thing. And so maybe you can picture John growing up. He didn't have wine at the festivals like everyone else was or at his meals. But even just picture a six-year-old boy with hair down to the back of his knees. It's never been cut. People look at John and know that he's distinct. In the same way that you might remember a few months back, I got to preach on the, the priestly garments. The high priest is clothed in a way that people look at him and just say, it reminds them of God. He's set apart. That's John. He's set apart. Another thing that makes him different is that the text says that he'll be great in the eyes of the Lord. Think about that. His, his greatness will be a source of joy and gladness. And it's, it's striking because can you think of anyone else in the Bible of whom it said he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's great in God's eyes. As I thought about what that might mean, I I, I like to search the scriptures for other things that talk about maybe what God sees. What does God see? What are his eyes on? Psalm 33 says that the eyes of the Lord, they're on those who fear him. Those whose hope is in his unfailing love. Psalm 34, the eyes of the Lord, on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cry. That's John. He fears God. He regards God as holy. John's hope is in His unfailing love, and his life is one of righteousness. But the thing that we really need to take away from that is found in verse seventeen. It's the thing that really tips the scales. It says that he will go on before the Lord in the power and the spirit of Elijah. And that doesn't really hit us, right? But to a Jewish mind, this is huge. To a Jew, this is a game changer. Because they all know that in order for the Messiah to come, Elijah must come first. Elijah must come and prepare the way. The Lord spoke that very thing through the prophet Malachi when he said, See, I'll send the prophet Elijah To you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord, and He's going to turn the hearts of the parents to the children, and the hearts of the children to their parents. And all the people knew this text because they all knew God's promises for Messiah. They knew these messianic texts, and all the people were waiting for Elijah to come. Even more and more as the oppression of the Romans grew stronger each day. And what is it that this angel tells? John's dad, he quotes Malachi. He says, your son is the Elijah who's to come. Your son will be the one to prepare a way for the Lord. Your son will be the one to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. He quotes Malachi. And these things, uh, one by one, were just surprising to me because I knew them, I've read them, but I'm not sure I ever grasp the reality of who Jesus' older cousin is. Because we don't spend a lot of time talking about John. We just kind of write him off as a, as a wingnut or something, you know? I don't ever remember hearing a sermon about John. We tend to look at the great men of the Bible. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Moses. We put these guys on pedestals. But what does Jesus say about John the Baptist? Out of all of them, every man born of woman, there's no one who's greater than John. That's John. That's who we're looking at right now. And hopefully you're beginning to see why he's so important. He's what some people call a forerunner. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with what a forerunner is, but a forerunner is someone or something that precedes the development or the coming of something or someone else. I know that's not easiest thing to grasp right away, someone or something that goes before someone or something else. This is John, full of the Holy Spirit from the time he's born, stepping onto the scene, unlike any other man or woman before him with the power and the spirit of Elijah. God is setting in motion the thing that has been on his heart since the garden, and John is the one to give that ball a slight nudge to get it rolling. Let's jump back to chapter 3. Now that we have a little bit of, of who John is, let's look at his message. Let's look at how it comes. Again, just like Jesus, we don't really know a lot about John's childhood, how he grew up. At least with Jesus, we get a little glimpse of it when he's 12 years old. John is literally, his birth is foretold. Next time he steps on the scene, he's 30 years old. Luke's gospel starts out or in chapter 3 with a couple verses listing some names, right? And Luke doesn't give us one name. He doesn't give us three names. Luke gives us seven names of people of importance and their roles and their districts of, of ruling, right? And remember what Neil said a few weeks ago. The reason that Luke is writing is so that the reader might have certainty of the things that he's reading. And this is a perfect example of that because this is pinpoint accuracy. There's only one or two years that all of these people would have been in those positions at the same time. And so we can have a really good idea that this is AD 30, give or take one year. And I think the thing that we should notice is that with all the status of these men, with all the pomp of these men, look who it is that the Word of God comes to. It's his way. God chooses someone who's overlooked by the world. It's someone whose heart is for him. It's John. It isn't those in positions of authority. It isn't even the high priest, the ruler of Israel. It's a homeless, shaggy, bug-eating man. And the phrasing that Luke uses, he wants to, he wants to conjure your memory about other homeless Persecuted, bug eating men of the Bible. The phrase, the word of the Lord came to, it's meant to remind you of the prophets of old, the men who have bore the burden of judgment of God in the years past Jeremiah, Jonah, Ezekiel, Elijah. And now John is joining their ranks. He has a word from God. A message from the Holy Spirit whose voice he's known and followed his whole life. Only now, the tone is different. It's changed. The time has come. John has a message that's burning in God's very heart. One that needs to be communicated to his children. It should be leaving us asking, what is his message? What do you want it to be? What do I want it to be? What were these people expecting to hear when they went out to see John? I guarantee their expectations were not met in his words. They're expecting God's answer. To be a ruler with a staff and a sword. To free them from their enemies. To bring Israel back into this promised land state of mind. But the message of God comes to John and instead of swift judgment, his words are as old as sin themselves. The message of God isn't something new. It's not some unheard of revelation. His earth-shattering, life-changing message is the same message that has graced every lip of a prophet who is before him. It's repent. Turn. And I wonder, do we even know what that word means? We hate that word. We cringe when we hear that word. And even if you go looking for some help at understanding what that word means, you can be left without a biblical perspective. Because sometimes as I'm studying for these Sunday mornings, um, I've started to just open up dictionaries, English dictionaries, Greek, Hebrew dictionaries, and look up these words and what do they mean? I've come to enjoy just comparing our definitions with the definitions that uh, were in the ancient world. And um, in this case, the Greek word for repent is just, I just laughed. I just couldn't believe these two definitions. And I want to see if you can pick out uh, what I saw in this. Because it in in every way kind of tells you about our culture compared to their culture. The Greek word, metanoeo, say it with me, Me metanoeo, just kidding, okay. (laughs) Repent, in Greek, means to change one's way of life as a result of a complete change of thought and attitude with regard to sin and righteousness. To change one's way of life as a result of a complete change of thought and attitude. The English definition of repent, to feel or express sincere regret or remorse about one's wrongdoing and sin. Do you see it? The English definition of the word, the focal component of repentance, is the sorrow or the contrition that a person feels because of the experience of sin, while the emphasis in the Greek is focused specifically on the total life change. Not just how we should think. Not just how we ought to feel. Yes, those things. But it should affect the way that you live your life. Total life change. And I say that to my, myself first this morning. Repentance is not sorrow. Repentance is not remorse. Biblical repentance is all about the change of behavior. It literally means to stop and to turn, to do a 180, to be walking in one direction. Repentance means you realize your sin. You stop walking. You turn around and you walk away. That's the thing that John is giving his life to, calling people. To do real repentance. And he's been commissioned by God, he's been commissioned by the angel, and he's been commissioned by the prophet Isaiah. Look at verse 4. It's a beautiful prophecy found in Isaiah 40. And this is it, how it sounds coming right out of the Old Testament. A voice of one calling, In the wilderness prepare a way for the Lord, make straight in the desert. A highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and the people will see it together. John is literally a voice of one crying out in the desert. And I think that there's two things that we need to see from the 700 year old prophecy. The first is this the prophet gives a picture. A picture of the valleys and hills becoming flat, the mountains bowing down, and the valleys coming up to make a highway. And this is kind of a stretch because they've never seen it on that grand of scale. But in the ancient world, this would have actually been familiar for them because whenever a king was coming to a town, a small town that really couldn't support the entourage of a king, the king would send workers before him the workers would come to the city gates and they would pile up earth. They would make the the road smooth. And they would fill in the ditches with dirt so that the road was high and flat and wide so that up to 30 of his best friends could walk before him, so his army could walk before him. The idea is this. When the king is coming... There's work to be done. A work that will make a way for the king, make an easy way for the king to enter in. And what John is saying and what Luke is wanting us to see from this text is that now is the time for that work to be done. Now is the time to prepare a way for the king. Not in our streets and towns, but in our hearts and lives. He's calling the people to be baptized, to join in with him, to be in agreement with to be on board with making a way for this king to come and enter their hearts through acts of repentance, real life change as a result of recognizing the de- debilitating effects that sin can have in our lives. So, if you don't know it this morning, you need to listen. Sin makes it hard for the king to come in. You can imagine the struggle that a mountain would introduce to a caravan of people traveling a great distance. You can imagine what it'd be like to descend hundreds of feet into a valley, to travel a mile, and then have to ascend back out of that valley. In the same way that mountains and valleys make it hard for the king to travel, in the same way that the rough roads make it a slow process, sin in your life makes it hard for the king of glory to come in. But when we turn from our sin, when we truly repent, when, when our convictions turn into real life change, our hearts become a welcoming place for that king. They become a wide highway for the king of glory to come in. The second thing that we need to notice from this text is that uh, maybe you were following along in Luke as I read it from uh, Isaiah. Maybe you noticed a word change. Luke says, all the people will see the salvation of God. And Isaiah says, all the people will see the glory of God. And you need to ask yourself, what is this difference? Why are these words being changed? Luke wants us to see something. He wants us to see that the glory of the Lord that all mankind will see is the salvation of God. Do you follow that? The glory of the Lord that all mankind will see is the rescue of Yahweh, even his rescuer, Jesus. Luke even actually uses Yeshua. Jesus means salvation of God. All the world will see the salvation of God. This is John's message. It's a message of repentance, but it's, it's more than that. It's a message of gospel. It's good news to the people of God. The good news that the long-awaited Messiah is on his way. He's coming. And John is using this message of repentance as a wake-up call to most people. To me, for sure. What he's saying is that going through the motions isn't going to cut it anymore. You're not going to be accepted because of who your parents were. You're not going to be accepted because of who your grandparents were. Just as God rose up people from himself out of a man and a woman who are 100 years old and as good as dead, God can do it again right now. He's coming for the broken. He's coming for the small. He's coming to bring a kingdom and a government of heaven to earth. A kingdom where the appearance of man will no longer hold any sway. It's where your heart will be judged and the righteous will be exalted. And I need to hear that this morning. And to be honest, I think West Michigan does too. So we put a lot of stock in who our parents were. Put a lot of stock into our lineage. When Christ says, I'm looking right at your heart this morning. And this sounds offensive, but God doesn't care that you call yourself a Christian. Do you know that? That that label doesn't mean a lot to him. He looks at children He looks at those that he loves that are found. It's not found in a label. It's found in your heart. He's still today looking past the label, right at the inmost place. John says in verse 9 that the ax is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And maybe that can just be the end right there. So we put so much stock into the appearance of the tree. And all along we forget about the fruit. It's inconsequential. It's literally the exact opposite of the way that God wants it. Jesus exhorts us many times in the Gospels. He says, don't worry about what you look like. Don't worry about the things that you have. Don't worry about what other people say about you. Instead, worry about what God says about you. Worry about how Christ sees you. Worry about uh, if your life is conforming more and more each day to the pattern of this world or to the pattern of his kingdom. John's message is a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle of repentance that breeds Christ-likeness. A lifestyle of saying no to sin and yes to a Savior. It's a lifestyle of humility. Humbly confessing your sin and receiving something that only Jesus can give, that's forgiveness. And then walking differently because of it. And it's striking to me what that message does to the people who go out to hear him. Because when John talks, the people say, What do we do? And it's the same thing that as Peter gets filled with the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts and he preaches that all men should believe in Jesus and repent from their sin, they're left saying, What should I do? What do we do then? And John just has some practical answers for him, doesn't he? Well, anyone who has two shirts, give one away. There's people who need the things that you're hoarding. Give it away. You got a lot of food? There's hungry people. Share it. Tax collectors, what do we do? Well, don't collect more than you're supposed to collect. Soldiers, Roman soldiers even coming and saying, what do we do? He says the same thing. Don't take people's money from them, be content. These things are real examples of repentance for these people. They're they're giving opportunities to walk in new directions. They're giving up the sins that they're they're committing so that their lives might bear fruit in keeping with that repentance. And I'm going to risk something right now, and that is uh, inserting the worst movie reference in a sermon ever at Crossroads Bible Church. Ready? Liar, Liar with Jim Carrey. Anyone? (laughs) Okay. Okay, so this story... Of John here, I just can't help think of this scene from Liar Liar. Jim Carrey plays an attorney named Fletcher that is trying to win back the love of a son who he's hurt multiple times by lying to him. He tells his son that he lies for a living. And his son knows that because uh, this scene has him on his birthday. His dad said he'd be there. Candles are lit. No dad. So the kid thinks, man, my dad is really hurting me because he keeps lying. I'm going to wish that for one whole day, my dad won't be able to tell a lie. He blows the candles out. And Fletcher now uh, gets himself into some funny situations, right? The whole rest of the movie is kind of him navigating life without lying, bluntly just telling the truth to all these people. And one of my favorite scenes of the whole thing is that um, he walks, so he's just been through it, right? And he's walking into his office He's all Jim Carrey can do what only he can do. He's all like goofy bodies slunched over. And, and his, he walks into the office and his secretary's on the phone. And she says, boss, skull's on the phone for you. He knocked over another ATM, this time at gunpoint, and he's wondering what your legal advice is. Jim Carrey walks over to the phone, no change in expression. He picks up the phone and he yells, Quit breaking the law! Novel, right? You want to stay out of jail? Quit doing things that get you put in jail. And in a less funny way, John is saying something really similar here. Don't just say you're sorry. Don't just say that you're going to change. Actually let your life show the change that's happening inside. Has Christ bought you and redeemed you and called you his own and set you apart? Let's see it then. Show me. And I know that for a lot of you you're in a place that I find myself in often. A place of wanting that change so bad. A place of confessing and striving so much to stay away from it but with no results. What do you do then? Where do you where do you turn when you're convicted when you repent and you try so hard to walk away from the thing that has gripped you, but you can't. John has an answer for us. The text says that all these people, they're coming out to him and they're hearing him and they're wondering in their hearts, is this the Messiah? Is this God's promised, anointed king? Is this him? And John says no. They say, you look like uh, a king from the Old Testament. You look like a prophet from the Old Testament. You, you sound like him. You're calling us to turn our hearts back to God. Are you the one we've been waiting for? And John says, no, I'm not the Messiah. I'm a man. I'm a sinner like you. But one is coming after me who's greater than I am, who's much greater, his, his sandals even. I'm not even worthy to stoop down and touch his feet. He's coming. Very soon now, you're going to see him. He's going to preach to you. He's going to preach repentance as I have. He's going to preach baptism as I have, but there's a difference. He's not going to baptize you with water. He's going to baptize you with fire. With his Holy Spirit. He's going to give you power. He's going to give you authority to stand up to the enemy's schemes and to overcome By the power of his blood. He's going to fulfill what God has spoken long ago about your heart. He says, I'm going to take out a heart of stone. And I'm going to put in you a heart of flesh. And I'm going to put my spirit within you. It's going to happen. John confesses that his baptism of repentance is only preparation for a baptism of real power. And there's always questions, right? I know that. There's questions about what does it mean, this baptism of the Holy Spirit? What is that? And I think a lot of these questions come up because of the way that we talk about what Jesus does in the giving of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus himself makes it very clear that God is a father who knows how to give good gifts. And that as we as children, if we ask, if we long and yearn for his Holy Spirit, he's gonna give without measure. He's gonna give you the Holy Spirit. It's not just one time either. It's not the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's a baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's a filling for each and every situation. It's a filling for every moment that you're alive. God has a plan and a strategy, a way to lead you and navigate you through life according to his word and his Holy Spirit. John knows it because he's been living it. comes to us in a few different ways. It comes, this baptism, it comes supernaturally because oftentimes you don't sense anything different. You don't feel empowered. You're not raising the dead all the time. but It's real and it comes to you really simply. Just in the same way that my daughters can ask me for something good and I want to give it to them as we ask our Father. He gives. You can say, God, Confess my sins and please, Lord, forgive me because of your son. I'm found under his blood and would you fill me with your Holy Spirit that I might walk empowered, that I might walk away from my sin, that I might walk towards you. John says this is the solution. He's going to burn off everything that isn't valuable in you. It's the solution to hurt and pain. It's the solution to broken marriages and relationships. It's the solution to the sex slavery industry. It's the solution to the refugee problem. It's the solution to sin. And John knew it. He knew that true repentance makes a way for forgiveness. And that it's Jesus who brings the full restoration. His message of repentance points us right to Christ. He says, open up, let this king may come in. Make smooth paths for him. Make a wide road that the king might come to you. And as I think about what John would say if he was here among us, if he was preaching this morning, and I think it's pretty clear. John says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus. Thank you for the Lamb of God to take away the sin, to shed his blood once and for all, one sacrifice for every man. Thank you so much for that. And I just want to say again today, I find my identity in that, in who you say I am, not in who the world says that I am. And I just pray this morning for, for power, for an anointing of the Holy Spirit to come upon us. Do your work this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. And this morning, uh, I don't know what, what you're feeling, but we just want to call you to something. Maybe you just need to repent. Maybe there's things in your life, sin that you've loved, and you want to lay it down today. The way you can do that is, We have water up here. Maybe you want to join in this baptism of repentance and scoop up some water and just touch your head, touch your heart, your hands, your feet, and say, God, cleanse me from my ways of sin. Maybe you're looking for the power of the Holy Spirit. Just ask him. Say, come right now. He's going to answer you.